Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the law firm Fenwick, helping technology and life sciences companies thrive at every stage of growth. Online at Fenwick.com. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Homelessness is always an important and heated issue here in L.A., and it's been particularly contentious recently because of a proposal to ban camping near freeway overpasses and some homeless shelters. L.A. City Council was supposed to vote on the idea yesterday, but members kicked the can down the road as they tried to find consensus. From Los Angeles, here's KCRW's Anna Scott. The city council was considering new rules around where people can sleep or sit outdoors and how much stuff they can have. Their old rules have been largely unenforceable since courts declared them unconstitutional. During Wednesday's meeting, a few different council members said some version of, everyone wants the same thing, clean, safe streets, and housing and services for people experiencing homelessness. But their discussion revealed deep divisions over what to actually do about the huge number of people living on the streets. Some suggested creating legal consequences for people who refuse services or shelter beds. Others said the city should look into commandeering hotel rooms to provide more homeless housing. With such wide gaps between members of the council, it's not clear how or if they'll be able to bring their ideas together before a planned November 24th vote. For The California Report, I'm Anna Scott. One of the most closely watched political races in California is happening in the 50th Congressional District covering much of eastern San Diego County and part of Riverside County. The race pits a veteran Republican politician who was in Congress for years before losing in another district and a young Democrat who ran for the same seat two years ago and lost. From San Diego, KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman has more. After recent polls showed Republican Daryl Issa and Democrat Amar Kampanajar neck and neck, a new poll of voters in the 50th has Issa with a double-digit lead. The Survey USA poll shows 51% of likely voters supporting Issa, with just 40% supporting Kampanajar and 9% still undecided. The poll has about a 6% margin of error, meaning ISA's lead could be slim. UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser says some $17 million has already been spent on this race. The fact that both candidates are still spending so much money in this race, I think shows that their internal polling shows that it, that Amar Kampanajar may still have a chance. In a statement, Kampanajar said the only poll that matters is election day and that Issa is trying to buy his way into Congress, while Issa says his previous congressional experience in the 49th is clearly resonating with voters. For the California Report, I'm Matt Hoffman in San Diego. We all know we've had terrible wildfires this year, but when it comes to dollars and cents, how much of the fires really cost California and where? Well, a new report out today says no one really knows the answer. Here's KQED science reporter Danielle Venton. 
It's a truism about personal finance. You have to know how much money you're spending if you want to control your budget. We know wildfires are an enormous cost for the state. But how expensive are they really? There were so many places that where we aren't actually measuring the cost. Michael Wara is a fire expert at Stanford and led the effort for the nonprofit California Council on Science and Technology. The finding? Knowing the true statewide costs of wildfires isn't currently possible. We thought this would be a much simpler problem. Some impacts aren't yet counted. For example, the damage smoke does to our health, even miles away from a fire. The morbidity and mortality impacts, deaths and sickness from wildfire smoke are are just an incredibly important public health issue for the state of California. Another impact? Damage to the environment and natural systems that we need for, say, drinking water. Particularly as we've had these large fires where we had lots of large losses of structures. Because, you know, when you burn down a house, you're, you're creating a, a pretty toxic mixture of ash. And if that isn't managed well, you know, runoff can be really deleterious to, to water quality. When researchers study these impacts, the scope tends to be limited. How did this fire affect sediment in that reservoir? How did a different fire affect asthma hospitalizations for a certain town? But, Wara says, the information is not collected statewide in any sort of organized way. So we just don't know. I mean, that's the, that's the, the real takeaway. But we know enough to be concerned, and particularly concerned given the scale of wildfire that the state has experienced in the last, you know, since 2017. Wara expects the true costs are far greater than we know. And, he says, being blind to those costs mean we don't know how to best spend our money, if we're spending enough or if we're spending where it makes the biggest difference. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Venton. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. This election, there's been a lot of attention paid to the voting rights of people who have a criminal history. After all, we send so many people to prison and jail in this country and in our state that the formerly incarcerated could be a pretty big voting block encompassing millions of people. I spoke about these issues with Tim Cornegay, an organizer with LA Free the Vote. It registers a formerly incarcerated to vote. Cornegay says there's a huge amount of misinformation out there on the topic. 
There are myths associated with voting that individuals who have been convicted of felonies are disenfranchised for the duration when in fact, uh, if an individual is on probation, state or federal, they can vote. If a person is not currently in prison, they uh, maintain their right to vote and we want folks to know that. We are talking about a lot of people, a lot of power if utilized in the right way. If you had to condense it down to one reason, why, what is the, what's the biggest obstacle preventing these people who can vote from not voting? Misinformation and indifference. And the most important vote is the one that is not cast. So it's critically important for individuals to vote because if you don't vote in your best interest, somebody else may vote contrary to your best interest. And, and finally, I mean, there's a lot of issues you could be involved in. Why this topic? Why, why this issue? Well, well, I am an individual who was formerly incarcerated. I'm an individual who was the subject of the implementation of the three strikes law. And given your own per very personal experience of the criminal justice system, are you somebody who sort of went from really not caring about this at all to now being a champion of it? I was totally indifferent. Didn't, didn't care one way or the other, but once I realized how important it was, I figured I would, I would be more uh, a contribution to uplifting my community than I ever was being a, a negative force in my community. That's Tim Cornegay with LA Free the Vote campaign. Although people who are on probation can vote in California, parolees can't. Proposition 17 on the November ballot would change that by extending the right to vote to ex-felons who are out on parole. This week, we've brought you stories about how the ban on affirmative action passed by California voters in 1996 through Prop 209 has affected college students and what they think about the current measure on the ballot, Prop 16, to bring affirmative action back. And there's a thread that runs through the reporting by student journalists, how to create a sense of belonging on campus. This morning, Sacramento State Junior Kayleen Carter tells us about how students are finding and creating community on campus and how Prop 16 might help. It's no longer good enough from my perspective that we graduate you. The experience that you have is equally important for me. Fabrizio Mejia helps lead UC Berkeley's Division of Equity and Inclusion. He says the affirmative action ban that came with Proposition 209 shifted more than just student demographics. The way colleges reached out to potential students changed too. To make sure they didn't violate Prop 209, schools became extra cautious about how they did outreach. But there was still an area where there was more flexibility. There's much more leeway for student service, like once you get to Cal to do some of that work than there is for the outreach piece of it. Nona Claypool is one of the student advocates doing the service Mejia mentioned. She works with the Indigenous and Native Coalition at UC Berkeley. Claypool grew up near the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. When I was nine years old, I knew that I had to get out of Wyoming. I knew that I lacked opportunity there to grow. I knew I had to get a university education Claypool did leave Wyoming and eventually ended up in Oakland at Laney College. While she was at Laney, she got linked up with the Indigenous and Native Coalition at Cal. They helped her apply to transfer there and connected her with the Native American student community. Now, Claypool is doing her own part to help students like herself get their needs met by surveying Indigenous students about the barriers they faced accessing higher education. 
my idea is to go into the communities and see what they need and what is like their grievance at this time and how could we build on that and change things. Ayo Banjo is a UC Santa Cruz senior and chair of the school's Pan-African Student Association. When he got to UCSC, he says, only 2% of the student population was Black. When you have that kind of like low population of Black people, it's kind of hard to not get the same reinforcement of support of not having people like who look like you, who show you that like, you know, hey, like, you know, sometimes imposter syndrome is normal. And Banjo has gotten the UC on board with a project that would pay Black students to help UC Santa Cruz figure out how to better support their community on campus. I was framing this Black Research Grant as a financial instrument supplied by the university to basically increase Black retention and recruitment by supporting Black students to have action-oriented research that helps diagnose the problem affecting their community. The University of California has had to rely on student efforts, like Claypool's and Banjo's, and off-campus resources to support outreach to underrepresented students since Prop 209 passed. Here's Fabrizio Mejia again. Yes, there's been a disinvestment. Yes, it's been more uh, difficult to figure out uh, where do we fill those gaps. But I think that work is happening. But, but I, I wish uh, that the state would be a more reliable partner in, in, in these efforts with us. But Mejia also says campuses and student advocates could do a lot more with state support if Prop 16 passes. For The California Report, I'm Kayleen Carter from Sacramento. And a big thanks to our student journalists, Janelle Salonga, Marisa Martinez, and Kayleen Carter. This special series is brought to you in collaboration with CalMatters and the College Futures Foundation. And that's the California Report for Thursday, October 29th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, offering remote telefinance services with financial advisors and digital financial planning tools. PersonalCapital.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me 
supporting the programs they love, while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.